Hi guys, we're back for another episode of the RCR podcast. Uh, I'm the Roman. That's Hi. Mr. Regular over there. Hi. And Can we do like our names? Oh, are you fine if, like if that? If you want to, I'm fine. I'm Nick. Brian. All right, cool. Yeah. I mean, because when you hear us on other podcasts, and Matt Fair is just calling us by our names, so and like other people are, so whatever. Yeah, it's. I mean, a lot of people who follow me on Twitter already know my name is Nick. Yeah. So and a lot of and every every single people every single person who's film my car anybody who's ever met me in person like are you mr regular and i'm like just call me brian yeah. my name's brian um so yeah uh today well we're recording this on monday october 23rd which was the release of the sailplane video yeah puke fest 9000 yeah i had would you, uh, some people don't necessarily know this but when uh, a review gets written, you record it and then you send the audio to me so that I can uh, piece it together to work on a song. And we had to do it that way, especially for this one, because I wasn't there for the sailplane shooting. And Mr. Regular, or well, Brian, uh, took care of all the writing on his own. So that was like a 100% you review. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was like really good. But also, you know, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do for the song. So I'm listening through the entire audio. And so I had heard it before, but I had never actually watched the video until this morning. And when I was watching the video, I found myself getting nauseous too. <laughs> um, if I really wanted to make people nauseous, I would have exported that at 60 frames a second instead of 30. Mm. That was the thing in the beginning. If you look at a lot of the earlier regular car episodes are at 60 frames a second. I thought, well, more frames, more better. And then some people complain and like, look, I really like your stuff, but 60 frames a second is making me nauseous when you have the first person perspective in the car and you're and you're walking around it or driving and your head's moving around because it's not my head and I'm not controlling it. I'm Ugh. yeah. So it went down to 30 frames a second, um, which is just normal. I could have gone 24 and be all film about it, but yeah. whatever. 30 frames is what most video games are i wonder what mr schwartz would think about or Do dr schwartz would think about you know the... i live on the main line <laughs> i'm dr Sch i don't think he's there anymore oh no uh the harold slavinsky is based largely on this professor we both had yeah and i had him in undergrad and grad well i didn't I, I didn't understand him as an undergrad as like a teenager i didn't get him yeah. But as a grad school, I'm like, this man's a genius. He's insane, but he's a genius Yeah. in film. His name is Dr. Lewis Schwartz from Kutztown University. Uh, he taught film theory. And uh, he also taught uh, American Romanticism Yes, as he well. did. Yeah. Really enjoyed that class. Mm-hmm. All his classes were pretty much the same. More or less, but his enthusiasm was really infectious. And I know that that's a phrase that I tend to overuse a lot, but it's true in his case, mm -hmm. especially when it came to that film studies course that we took. Yeah. I mean, this is a man who was openly weeping at the end of Grand Illusion when he <laughs> showed it in class. And I'm looking over and, you know, it's kind of, I don't know, he was very verklempt, but trying to keep <laughs> it uh, on the low. I know. Well, well, who was it who said if he was on a desert island, his film would be Grand Renoir's Grand Illusion? Yeah, I think that was him. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, that and um, he was similarly emotional with Tokyo Story, and I got pretty emotional. I mean, I wasn't openly crying in class, but uh, that was why I decided that for you know because we each had to take a film and analyze it mm -hmm. why i took tokyo's story because i really connected with it because it's a story of it's, family yeah and it's all visual narrative yeah, all yeah it's it's like there's it's 
Well, first of all, it's a foreign film, so whatever you got subtitles and and you're just reading that, so any inflections in the voice you don't I wouldn't understand. But the visual narrative is the disparity between urban lifestyle and and the rural lifestyle and the schism between uh, uh, the family generations. Yeah, it's a generational disconnect or a tale of generational disconnect, and so mm-hmm. you have the parents, and there was this beautifully. Uh, arranged shot where you have the three people sort of kneeling down in a perfect row Mm -hmm. but they're also different heights but wearing different colors so you have one person on the far left side of the frame wearing all white other person on the far right side of the frame wearing all black and Mm -hmm. then in the middle you have this gray and it was me it was probably one of the most like far up my own ass papers that (laughs) i had ever written but explaining it and also having to give that sort of demonstration in class of being uh, of taking that shot and just saying like this is what it looks like or this is what this represents and this is what this represents and i don't remember the exact details but it's a film that i've actually gone back to which i can't actually say about grand illusion for as much as i really enjoyed it Mm -hmm. um it was actually the very first uh foreign language best picture nominee at the oscars Mm -hmm. and it didn't win but it was still a milestone film for showing that you know americans can appreciate foreign cinema in right. hollywood and right. i don't know it was just a very well constructed narrative yeah it's it's a humanist narrative at the end everybody's people and you know it was banned by the nazis and everything like that yeah. and and it was and it was hard for people to take the grand illusion because um it came out in like 31 uh, I, I, it was closer to the late 30s. I want to say 38. Was, um, oh, okay. But it was it was before World War II, if I remember correctly, like right. before the outbreak. Right. So it was like, oh man, and now you can rewatch it. You yeah. Can, you can rewatch it because okay, for people who aren't film assholes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Grand Illusion is directed by John Renoir, and which I'm mispronouncing. Yeah. I got Renoir. Jean Renoir. Jean Renoir. Jean Renoir. Yeah. Um, it's a French film about World War One. Yeah. But it's really about World War Two mm. because it was filmed in the 30s. It's about I'm sure I've talked about this in a different podcast. Lord knows. I'm I can't remember if I talked about it in any RCR episodes. And even if I would talk about it in an RCR episode. It would the episode would be half an hour long. Yeah. Um, the plot is a bunch of French. It follows a bunch of French pilots uh, who are shot down and escape from multiple prison camps. So you can sell it to somebody. Hey, this is about a prison break. Ah, oh, I'm all in. Yeah. A POW prison break. Awesome. And then there's a play in the middle of it. And it gets very that French. That's so weird. <laughs> Schwartz went nuts over that. It's like, look, that's a microcosm of this entire movie within the movie. And the the, the second, oh, the, the, the... It's a Russian nesting doll of meaning. I know. Of just like it's... all these different things that it could represent. You know, you have the friendship between the, the well, the Nazi analog you know yeah really the yeah the prussian that's one the the german officer uh played amazingly by uh i don't know yeah i can't i I cannot he didn't win any american awards for his performance but for that yeah yeah um i do not know who i i do not know who will win this war um but it will be the end of the ralph ralph steins and the bordiers 
so pleased at myself for being pr- being able to correctly pronounce uh, that character's name. Bourdieu. 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 <laughs> I I just remember because yeah. Bourdieu. Have you really got like the, there is a, there is these two characters? It's uh, two officers, and there's there's a disconnect between um, characters within the movie because they're all from it's it's a uh, it's an island of misfit toys. Each every class of people is represented in this uh, French uh, air wing. Um, including African-Americans in a 1930s film. Um, um, Both uh, race and social standing and ethnicity as well. Um, But the big schism is between the... um, The nobility or the aristocratic class played by uh, or represented by the characters, uh, uh, Captain Bourdieu, who is the commander of this, uh, the French air wing, and then Rauchstein, who is the German officer in charge of the prison camp. The thing is, uh, Rauchstein and Bourdieu are closer, are more friends with each other than they are with their own subordinates because, well, we're aristocrats. Yeah. Um, we're of the higher class. And, and it's sort of, when, when you look at it from an American perspective, it's like, wait a minute, what? Why are the German officers having dinner with the French prisoners and they're just talking? It's like, you have to understand, because they were officers, the whole, the three-dimensional Star Trek chess is being played right here and like, oh, I want to talk to someone of my own ilk. Yeah. And also, because we never really had this in the United States over in Europe, as represented for at, in the First World War, a lot of the aristocracy, aristocracy were related blood through blood. Yeah. What was it? The, the um, in World War One, the uh, king, I don't know, England. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. It was well, a king I mean, and like the Russian czar were related. Yeah, and well, stuff I like mean, that. You get a, a lot of intermingling of blood in houses of nobility, in the sense that you're, you know, how many Queen Victoria had like nine kids, and each of them, well, not each of them, but a lot of them ended up being nobility of other countries. You mm-hmm. know, uh, uh, Queen of Greece or something. I don't know this for sure. I'm just sort of, you know, hypothetically spitballing, but you know. They become royalty in other countries, and it's part of that whole royal lineage of alliances and all that other, you know, royal aristocracy mumbo jumbo. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, especially with the Grand Illusion, I feel like there's a sense of this is how war was conducted at a time where there was still some semblance of dignity to Mm -hmm. it. Which, yes, it's still absolutely barbaric and this horrible thing, but there was this understanding that these are still people. Right. And it's hard to really communicate that now because we're very much in a point where we depersonalize all our enemies. Yeah. And make it so that they don't have families and they're not really people and they don't like things all they think about is killing us. Yeah. And it becomes clear throughout this movie that these are people who have homes 
you know, and who have people who are missing them and mm-hmm. have people that they miss. Mm-hmm. And so it's, uh, it's immensely, um, an immensely dichotomous narrative. Right. You know, and to show it to, uh, college sophomores and realize you're going to watch a war film where there's no war in it. Yeah. It's like, wait, what? Of course there is shooting at the end. Um, Oh, the ending scene. Uh, they do break out of the uh, German prison, uh, which is a real place. And if we ever do RCR Germany, like a complete whore, I have to go <laughs> to this castle. It's like, this is the fucking castle from Grand Illusion. Um, um, the Out of, I think, the nine men who attempt to flee the castle, only two make it. Um, um, and I forget their characters' names. Yeah, I should. So it, it's the lead. Uh, Jean Gambin was the actor who is like the lead sexy actor who's like <laughs> the very, like a very 1930s quaffed yeah. man. Um, he is the, um, uh, he's, he's a Protestant, which matters. And with, uh, oh, uh, um, I think his co-pilot or something who is, uh, who is a Jew. So that there's that going mm. on, um, which is also revolutionary for a thirties film. Yeah. Um, so they're the only two soldiers who escape the prison and, but in order to do that, their officer sacrifices himself, uh, Bourdieu, um, yeah. the, the captain. Um, what he does is, uh, well, it, it's kind of Ocean's Eleven-esque where um, they, they show how they're escaping and all the steps they they, uh, yeah. they, um, they went through. Uh, they had to create two riots. Well, not really riots, but they started partying. Yeah. Um, and they, they found all these little flutes. And again, like, how are you getting supplies from your family to uh, your prisoners, but you're getting supplies from your family? Yes, you're getting supplies from your family. Again, we understand that it's a different time. Yeah. We, they're, they're still people. And so, uh, oh, I almost remember the, uh, the Jewish guy, his name. Anyway, um, uh, he was the guy who got all these little flutes, like these cheap pan flutes. So at a certain hour, everybody agreed to start playing these flutes. All the guards say, come on up. Just give me these flutes. All right. And then um, they gave the flutes and they said, okay, 10 minutes after that, just start singing and bashing pots and pans around and don't stop when they come in. That was like the second one to realize that they're screwing around and this isn't really a thing to be worried about. They're just restless. But in that time, there was one place in the castle prison where you could stand and not be seen by the watchtowers. Yeah. And that was where they were going to repel down the side and they were going to do it during the second sort of distraction. Um, why they needed to, I forget, I guess one, because they'd be on alert. Yeah. The guards would be on alert, but if they do it again, they'd be just perturbed. Yeah. And like they're oh for Christ's sake, so, and that's when they escaped, and only uh, the Protestant and the Jew escape, 
And while they were doing that, Bourdieu took his flute and he wasn't hanging out with everybody else, which is indicative of his whole stance within the movie. You see him, but they always frame him. They always frame him on the edge of the frame or they have an element between him and other and other people, like a door frame in the background. Yeah. There's a line, creates that line between him and the rest of his troops. Even though they're, they're all sitting together, there's always a line or there's a candlestick or someone has their rifle in between or there's something leaning on the wall. Yeah. They're all, he's always put in a separate compartment. Yeah, these marks of division. Yeah. In, yeah. So... When he escapes, uh, or um, Bourdieu realized that the distraction had to be longer, yeah, like for them to rappel fully down. So he had to create a third diversion, and what he does is he climbs up in the rafters of like the uh, of the central sort of courtyard. Yeah, he's of like on castle. the ramparts, kind of. Yeah. And he's up there, and it's, it's, it's very much like the Pied Piper. He is up there with his one leg up. He is in his full dress. He's in full military dress. He, like, dresses up. He knows he's going to his death for this. Yeah, this is where Schwartz was, like, getting. Yeah. And I don't blame him. Like, it's a very powerful scene. And. Because isn't it Rafenstein? Rafenstein. Rafenstein. Who is kind of calling his name, and without really saying it, but just through the inflection in his voice, what, saying, yeah. you don't what, have yeah. to do this. And, and he switches to English. In the movie, this is one of the rare times when they speak in English. And Bourdieu and Raffenstein, we, I couldn't really tell because, you know, you're, I, I, I'm reading the subtitles. But they're not only switching from French to German. They're speaking Polish with each other throughout the movie. They switch from languages. And the point of that was to prove to each other that well, we're elevated. We can speak multiple languages, including English. Yeah. And there's a bunch of times where they switch to English in the middle of a sentence. And it was just part of uh, Renoir's direction to show how elevated these men were. They could speak multiple languages. But at the climax, uh, um, Raffenstein speaks English to Bourdieu. Um he said, Bourdieu, Bourdieu, have you really gone insane? And the miraculous thing about this actor is he speaks, when he switches to English, he speaks with an American accent. Hmm. Have you really gone insane? And uh, Bourdieu re replies in a very American accent for the 30s. He says, I'm perfectly sane. Hmm. Bourdieu, Bourdieu, you do realize if you do not obey, I will have to shoot. I dread to do that. Yeah. And... Um, and as Bourdieu climbs further into the ramparts, oh, this is Schwartz level jerk off stuff. <laughs> He's moving in between the ramparts and the way it's framed is, you know, it's, it's sort of a metal wooden scaffolding. And as he walks through the scaffold, he's moving through chambers mm. and then he's free. He moves out of that. And the point at the very end, right before he is shot, he's standing around no more scaffolding. He is in the open. And it's one of the few times where um, the character Brodieu is not being framed or compacted by his own social class. That's what my point in my paper is. That's what that represented. Yeah. And at the very last time, he was almost free to be his own person. Um, 
uh, Raffenstein was forced to shoot him. And he stands there. And of course, it's a very 1930s, you know, there's no squib. There's no blood. There's a, yeah. He just uh, holds his chest. And he like looks. Then he falls down. But he's just shot with nothing around him. I mean, filmed photography with yeah. nothing around him. And then, then after that, the narrative switches to uh, the Protestant and, and the Jew as they escape through uh, uh, German-occupied France trying to get to Switzerland. Yeah, the big sh- uh, Boisdieu's death is the climax of the movie, but it goes on a little bit. Yeah, it goes longer, on for like a half an hour. Yeah, of them searching this old, uh, this local village house where they had been hiding or something, and mm-hmm. then them reaching the border, and eventually, you know, the guy's about to shoot his stop. You know, it's... That's in the Schweiz. They're in Switzerland. They're in neutral territory. Yeah. And, and, in the, most, and the other... Do you remember the other... Uh, uh, German officer, what he says? No, good for them. Yeah, well, yeah, almost like uh, they've escaped. They're no longer in the war, and that is also representative of these two people escaping their own compartments. Um, they may have been Protestant Jew. They may have been a working class man who was uh, um, the uh, Protestant versus uh, a merchant uh, who was the Jew. Sorry, stereotype, but you know, yeah, you can't well, win them all with these movies, and. They're walking across a snow-covered field, no trees around them. They're free. Yeah. They're free of the rules. And also, that was also what uh, um, Renoir was talking about. What World War One did was it erased all the old rules. But would it then create new ones? Yeah. In, in the sense that, you know, we have... It, it almost redefined the way that war was conducted. And also, while also creating this semblance of i guess it was a changing of the guard you know this was the passing of the sort of attempt at a dignified conduction of warfare Mm -hmm. and uh i just think it's really powerful that they ultimately their freedom is defined by an arbitrary border border yeah yeah or well i guess it's not like arbitrary in the in the sense that you know of the word arbitrary but Mm -hmm. within the confines of of escape, you know, well, confines of escape, yeah, but, yeah. but just the idea that, okay, now they're here, lower your gun. You yeah. Know? And when it's, and in the, the photography for the final scene, there is no sign that says Switzerland. There is no fence. They had a jump like uh, in the great escape on a motorcycle. Yeah. No, we just knew they, they just knew, Oh, the borders in the middle of that field and there's no representation to the audience. Yeah. Which further says that the rules are all just made up and it's all a what? Grand illusion. Mm. Hey. hey. Yeah, great movie. But that was one of those. Uh, I don't, how did we even get on this? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we were talking about Dr. Schwartz and I would I forget. Yeah. Who um, knows? But yeah, it was very much a, a seminal movie mm-hmm. for, you know, foreign films making their way across the pond mm-hmm. but uh yeah so i was perusing our cars this morning and apparently someone posted this craigslist ad for this insane 2jz gte swapped rear wheel drive 2001 subaru impreza rs for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars <laughs> uh basically how do you fit a, what a 2j in there uh yeah how do you, that's a long block. How did you fit that in a Subaru? No idea. That's a picture. 
okay. That's the only picture? Well, no, there's a line of pic- a row of pictures at the bottom, but it's just, you know. All right. Basically, I guess it's more significant for the insane description that he gives of the oh. car itself. Hello, fellow lister of... Ugh, what are you at? Rent fair? <laughs> Do you dream of fireballs and poor decisions? Of course you do. Are you tired of your WRX blowing head gaskets and knocking like, fi- like fifth graders left hand after discovering the internet? Fuck yeah, you are. I was too, so here it is or was. My 2001 Subaru 2.5 RS, and lucky for you, it's for sale at a very reasonable shit ton of money. <laughs> I purchased this RS. is getting good. I purchased this RS in 2007 from North Carolina for many monies because it was the best condition, rust-free one I could find available. Then the engine blew up. So I asked that he swapped it. Then the tranny blew up. So I six-speed six swapped it and put a bigger turbo on. The engine blew up. So I put in a built engine, that one blew up too. And lastly, uh, one more built engine and it ran great. So clearly the logistical thing to do was to part was to part it out since it ran I'm sorry. So clearly the logical thing to do was to part it out since it ran cut. Wait. Oh, there's no punctuation here, and I'm reading this according to the rules of grammar. So I have to put in your punctuation for you. So clearly, comma, the logical thing to do was to part it out. Period. Capital S, since it ran... No, I'm sorry. So clearly, the logical thing to do was to part it out. Since it ran, cut the car up and two Jay-Z... You're trying to say three different things in this run-on sentence, and I don't like it. English major. Why the fuck would I do that? Good fucking question. Three miserable years later, here it is. As the car sits now, the drivetrain is basically new, which means it's not new. Uh, The not new car, not new to the car, shit's new. It had a brand new OEM GT short block. The head has been rebuilt by Thunder Performance and upgraded, and also the Getrag V166 six-speed. End of the car with zero miles on it, all of which now probably has 100, 150 miles on it, including the rest of the car. Everything was bought new, except for the things I did not buy new. I added that. I'm not going to list bit by bit, piece by piece, because you don't care how many AN fittings I used here. So basically the shit in order as it comes off the head. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, Ford 8.8 rear. No, He knows what he's doing. Something, something, fuel cell, blah, 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 Ricardo. Also, I haven't picked it up. It's rear-wheel drive. Yes, fuck me, not any old drive anymore. I'm wondering if Craig's is going to actually post crying emoji. I'm not Ken Block, and I don't have an all-wheel drive boner or burnouts and fire. I was a car made 650 fuel, 655 wheel horsepower on pump and was tuned by who cares, and I don't know. Um, over 700 pump something, one nine. Why am I asking $150,000? Aside from the excessive amount of money spent on it, cry me a river. And I'm fabrication and labor and time and other shit you don't care about as a buyer, exactly. Now it's what it's worth to me. Or, well, then, or at least someone in the ballpark. Basically, it's enough money for me to give a disappear for a year. It's enough money for me not to give a fuck and disappear for a year. And become a professional gambler and turn it into a million dollars so I can try to convince the people at Wawa to let me buy my own store. I'm, sh- I'm sure shit not putting my phone number on this app. Feel free to email me if you're actually serious and want to make me an offer to my Instagram. Mr. 240, you can see the burnout videos for yourself and realize how sweet a deal is. $150,000 it is. I accept cash and will not be accepting any certified checks via mail from Africa before your shippers show up to steal my car. And where is he? I mean, it'd be fun to review. 
uh, Milford, I think it said. What state is that? I have no earthly idea. Well, he doesn't have a plate on the front of his car. And Craigslist is not loading these. It's very strange in the sense that if you're pricing something for what it's worth to you, I mean, why should anything be affordable? You know? Yeah. It's worth exactly how much someone is going to pay for it. I'd be surprised if he gets 50000 for that. Yeah. Because 150 G's... Well, that's what he'd like to get. Yeah. I, I predict he'll get 50000 If If it were sort of in... If that exact thing had been in, I don't know, like Fast 9 yeah. or something, then... Eh, but right. even then, you know? But... I think people are kind of, they get excessive. It's it's almost like Craigslist is almost like an open mic night <laughs> where everybody's testing out their solid five. Yeah. You know, and just sort of seeing how it goes. But also, because I think there's something to be said for having a charming ad. Oh, yeah. You know, because Craigslist ads do tend to go viral. And if it goes viral, then all of a sudden you can get this whole influx of offers of people who want to own that, that car. Yeah. It becomes that car, not a... Two Jay-Z swapped Subaru. Yeah. Which, I mean, how much were they even going for new? I mean, it's just... I don't know. Yeah, it's just a weird thing of you want to have people view your car as something that is essentially put on a pedestal that's slowly rotating. <laughs> and, oh, look at my thing and yeah. all this shit I did to it and how nice and... yeah. I don't know. I mean, your time is worth whatever you put into it, but don't try to say that, well, I put all this time into it and you should pay, you know, triple what the thing would be worth. Yeah. I don't know. It's just weird. But, um, I don't know. Did you hear about the, uh, they're making this new, uh, series called Driven and it's by, uh, Peter Dinklage from Game of Thrones and uh, Channing, Channing Tatum. And uh, I don't think they're going to be in it. Ferrari? Yeah, it's Ford versus Ferrari. And it's such a strange thing in that throughout the entire time that I was doing, uh, well, I mean, I did two RCR stories that were sort of Ford centric. And for some reason, like in my research, it's never really came up, but just the feud between Henry Ford II and Enzo Ferrari, because you know, I didn't know that Ford was trying to buy Ferrari in 1963. Huh. Um, and that they almost got it, but Ferrari didn't want Ford controlling the motorsports division. Mm -hmm. So it ended up being this thing where Ford II got Don Fry and was saying, well, not the MMA fire, but uh, it ended up uh, telling him, hey, uh, beat Ferrari. Like, this is our mission go into Le Mans and just destroy Ferrari. Like, yeah. do whatever you have to do. And so they came with the GT40, and that yeah. was kind of their whole thing where uh, they ended up beating them for four straight years. The only something. good thing Henry Ford II ever did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, because the man was crazy. Oh, yeah. And, and, but when you have years, entire decades of your life being shaped as this person who can do no wrong of course you're going to have this inflated opinion of yourself yeah you know uh this is a guy who really didn't have the business acumen to take over that company and he didn't have the vision for it either no he had the it would 
it he had the vaguest notion of what made the car industry work the way it was he was very good at walking around and being the boss yeah and having people dofting their caps at him and, yeah you know just making sure I, I guess he was very good at rubber stamping but the problem yeah. is that he wanted more than rubber stamping you know it's not the guy who just you know the producer in a movie who fronts the money and lets the people who know what they're doing get it done mm -hmm. it's he wants to have that credit that executive producer credit yeah. of i had something to do with the story i had something to do with how this turned out and why it worked or didn't it's not enough to just be the guy who writes the checks yeah um and i think there's some there is value in being the guy that writes the checks i don't know why you know because you still get to say hey this happened because of me but yeah. he wanted to kind of have this iacocca-esque you know bursts of idea and even some of iacocca's best ideas were just modifications of things that already existed you know mm -hmm. you're taking a ford Fairlane and sort of modding it and creating something that you know when you're making the mustang it's kind of you're taking falcon these, yeah or, sorry the, yeah sorry the, the um but these are all things that are uh transitioning into newer products it's not like they're necessarily being made from whole cloth right but you know that takes a certain uh familiarity with the market to be able to anticipate trends mm -hmm. and help craft them yourself yeah. uh and I, I guess henry ford ii didn't really have that and so i'm kind of wondering uh if they're really going to portray Henry Ford II this way, or if he's going to be portrayed as somebody who was better at his job than he was, or if he was just like an egomaniac who wanted Ferrari, you know, just wanted them crushed into the earth, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's just an interesting thing. Because when you look at Enzo Ferrari, a young Enzo Ferrari kind of looks like Andy Serkis, who was a uh, Gollum in Lord of the Rings. Ah. Um, but... The older Enzo Ferrari kind of looks like Alan Alda. Yeah. So it's this strange thing of um, I'm guessing they're just going to deal more with the young Enzo than the older one because this is all taking place in and around the 60s, okay. presumably. But uh, I don't know. I'm definitely interested in it, um, especially because I was just watching a grand tour about the GT40. Hmm. Um, good show. But uh, I mean, again, it's not the same as Top Gear. But, mm. you know, it's a good facsimile. Think of Henry Ford II as a little, as a seven-year-old boy wanting to help in the kitchen. Mm. You're not, you're not, you're not. Yeah. Okay. You got me the spoon. You helped. Thank you. Yeah. You're not really good. I think you need more of this. Uh, no, no, no. Hey, put that down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. So. Uh, as a follow-up to the last podcast, I fixed the stumbling idle and the intermittent surging at steady throttle on my DR by shimming the uh, needle jet one millimeter, or rather with a one millimeter brass washer um, from the hardware store, which cost me, what, 11 cents. So there you go. And I also tightened up the throttle cable so there was no slack and slop in the, in the uh, twist throttle. Um, which is another thing I've noticed on a lot of motorcycles I ride. There's a lot of slop in that throttle. Um, in that the um, the throttle has the preciseness of a well-abused X-Men Children of the Atom video game on the <laughs> Ocean City boardwalk. Those controllers have been slapped around. Yeah. Um, 
going back to the 90s with that one. Who plays arcade games anymore? Uh, well, it depends on where you go. Um, I've been to round one down at the Exeter Square Mall. My brother really likes that place. The problem is, and it's not a problem of round one, it's that a lot of the classic, all of the classic arcade games are mechanical. You open the backs of those things. I was at a warehouse one time uh, where the guy repaired them, and you open the back of like a 90s arcade game, it was 80s especially, and it's just these big, big circuit boards, and and it's all, all proprietary, and some of these things were hand-soldered, and there's all these mechanical linkages and everything to, to which with, through which you interface uh, through the controllers. And then you go to round one, and most of these video games are big touchscreens. Yeah. And and like the rhythm games are just the simplest buttons. And when you think about a lot of the classic arcade games, they they had controllers that were looked like the stuff you were playing. Like Road Blasters was this yoke with triggers and, and buttons that looked different depending on what they did. And the the controller itself lit up with different lights that told you what weapons you had. And all the racing games had different steering wheels and different seats. And of course, pinball games had the mechanical thrower, yeah. just the big plunger and a spring. Those could break. Um, in the same way, they were they were like classic cars. And now all like modern video games are just sort of, eh, they were the same. Yeah. Like even the shooter games had their own specific guns with their own specific feel. I think Area 51 stopped all that as it was a very generic shooter. Yeah, I had Area 51 the, with the light gun game with yeah. the actual, you know, pistol that came, which it was always strange to me that it was a pistol and not something, you know. Because half the time you're with me, you have machine guns or shotguns, which I get. But I noticed that this is a generic, after, after Area 51 and beyond, most of the shooters had that pistol, that hand pistol you used, which yeah. was like this sort of, weird either 1911 or browning high power looking thing and it was all a generic pistol after that yeah have you ever played this uh any of those um live action video shooters where you get the pistol but the screen of the you know game that you're playing is just comprised of live action video so they had this game over at the works down in why i'm missing and uh because they have a bunch of arcade games old and new um, but mostly new. But this was probably their oldest game. They don't have it anymore. But it was, uh, you have this pistol that's holstered in front of you. And basically, you know, it's a quick draw game. Okay. But it's live action video. So you see where they make the cuts of whether you got hit or they got hit. And so it freezes for a minute and then cuts to whatever the result was. And it's just incredibly strange because the calibration on those things are completely off. Yeah. But... And I'm thinking that's part of why they got rid of it, but you're uh, essentially, that's something that I don't think could ever happen now, of where people would rather have photorealistic graphics than to have a thing that is actually, you know, a live action video. Because it's strange. We want our games to still have that element of unreality. I I can't think of it. Yeah, keep me on the right side of the uncanny valley. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I wonder if that was one of those um, Laserdisc games in the same vein as Dragon's Lair or uh, Space Ace, where any action you did was an either-or. Either you hit or didn't. And based on that, it would skip to a different chapter 
<laughs> in the laser disc and the game would continue so all it was was a glorified dvd menu huh i never thought of it that way but that's really a good way of putting it yeah um, why they were laser discs back in the day well that's what they had and then i guess you could go to a dvd maybe laser discs took less time to load maybe i don't know uh but it was kind of this uh ridiculous frontier time of hey it's the future look at the things we can do yeah uh there was this one game called it may have been also a laser disc game uh it was one of those fake 3d games we have chosen marshall brown as our champion you missed something you know the effect of creating a fake 3D image through a curved reflective bowl? And if there's a hole in the bottom of the bowl it, and you put something in it, it makes it appear to float? Not mm. really. People in the comments know exactly the game I'm talking about. There is no screen. You're looking down at what looks like a field and floating images appear. It's a, it's, it was cleverly done. The gameplay is horrific uh, because it's just an either-or thing. Eh, I'll think of it. Yeah, I'm trying to look it up. But you know, Jamie, look this up. No, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> no I'm, I'm getting nothing. Yeah, that's the one thing I don't like about podcasts where they try to think of something and they're Googling it. And I'm like, I don't really want to listen to a podcast to listen to two people Google something. Yeah. If it comes up, it comes up. We'll go back. Yeah. But, well, I mean, I was thinking of uh, dipping into the Ask RCR mailbag. Oh, boy. All right. Um. Well, this one, first off, is uh, what did you want to be when you grew up as a kid? Comic what, book artist. And what did you think you were going to be? Oh, what did I want to be? What did you want to be and what did you think you were going to be? Because for oh, some kids. Oh, want to be? Uh, well, okay. If you go way back, my dad was a pilot. So I'm like, I'm going to fly airplanes. I'm going to be in the Navy like he did. Oh, you got to know a lot of math. Oh, mm. I'll be a comic book artist. And that's kind of where I went most of the way through high school. But then I got better at writing. And so for most of life, it's like, I want to be a comic book artist. Yeah. And I could draw okay for a small high school and I could draw things that look like what they look like. <laughs> that was kind of where I was. Um, then freshman orientation in college. Oh, the summer between uh, senior year or it may have been senior year and well, let's just say senior year of high school. Uh, one of my neighbors was an art teacher for a different school. Mm. And my dad said, well, bring your stuff over and kind of show it to her and tell her what you think. And she said, well, I, I, I like made a really, what I thought was a really good drawing. And she said, well, if this is something you really want to do, just that one line. If this, yeah. if you really want to do this, I can give you a book and you can do that. I mean, she was looking at like a crap drawing and that was the best I could do. Mm. It's like, look, if you really want to do this, um, 
you're going to have to do this or that. And it's a good thing she told me. I like, look, you may like this. You may have some skill. Yeah. But it's going to be a long road if you really, really want to be an artist. Um, that's a good thing she said that. Because um, I ended up being much better at writing. And then I had this one class with Mr. McCormick, whose book I have right behind me, one of my teachers in high school. Which incidentally is an art book <laughs> because he was an English teacher, but then he painted. Mm. Um, and I was sitting in orientation for Kutztown University. They call it Connections. And you had to pick, you were going to, oh, and uh, well, write, write your major that you've picked. Oh, I didn't pick a major. And at that moment, I just put down creative writing under because it was offered. I think it was creative writing or business writing, something writing. Yeah. Might have and, been professional writing. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. That was it. It sounded better. Creative writing. Oh, professional writing. Same thing. I guess I guess my curriculum threw in a bit of like, here's how to make a website. Here's how to do technical writing. Yeah, that's what I realized I declared for professional writing and then realized that it just meant technical writing. Yeah. And so I'm like, screw this, I'm out. English. Yeah. <laughs> So that was it. In in one, I guess I got to do something right then. I, I selected my major during orientation. And the die is cast. And the die is cast. And I wanted to be an automotive journalist. But at that time, this is like 2000, 2000 to 2004, um, my one teacher said, well, I really want to write about cars. And he said, well, I guess I know someone who works at the Reading Eagle and the Allentown Times. And maybe like to write about cars in the early 2000s, there was like four automotive journalists and, and, and they wrote stuff. Yeah. And it was all dry and boring. So I learned a little bit about video production, but it was just for fun. I had not a single video production class. And even in terms of what we do now, it's it's very simple stuff. I just learned the program, um, which anybody can do with with enough self determination. Yeah. And then after graduation, I just had Joe jobs, and I've talked about this before. Until I went back to school for masters and certification, then I met Nick, and then teaching jobs and. Uh, Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> I've told this story a bunch of times. And if we ever get on Joe Rogan, I'm sure I'll be telling it again. Yeah. Uh, mine, I always thought I was going to be a pro wrestler. Like, so, because my grandfather was a pro wrestler in Puerto Rico. He yeah. was El Lobo, the wolf. <laughs> and so um, I, I carried that like in my head until I was around 15. And then <laughs> I was like, because eh, I was like lifting like crazy. You were you know? on the wrestling team. Yeah. And I was on the wrestling team. Well, I was in, on the wrestling team in junior high. So I wasn't really. Uh, and then I got like a neck thing. Mm. Um, I had to go to a chiropractor for like a year. And uh, eventually, you know, after that, I was just kind of like, I don't, I don't really I don't think I have this in me because, you know, when you're a pro wrestler, you're never home. Uh, and I guess me and my family are really close. And it was just. Uh, that and I realized, you know, I'm not really someone who likes, you know, getting beat up, mm. <laughs> I guess, because that's essentially what it is of, you know, taking bumps. You know, it's not going to feel great and your body probably never gets used to it. Mm -hmm. But uh, 
after a while it was i i ended up in writing almost the same way you did well writing was like always one of the one things that i was always good at Mm -hmm. and then trying but i never thought i could really do anything with it Mm -hmm. and uh coming to that point of realization that well you know i gotta at least try you Mm -hmm. know and so i don't know that is what it was but i had no idea what i even was going to do with it i thought oh maybe i'll write a book or something and become Mm -hmm. a novelist and blah 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 and it's just kind of like going along and figuring it out as you go along and hoping that things work out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, operating under the assumption that eh, they're probably not going to. And you just going to you're going to end up doing whatever it is you need to do to survive. But, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I consider myself really lucky to have, you know, b- been in this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I feel it when I go to the uh, supermarket. And any of the sort of establishments where I had jobs like that, coffee shop, I was a barista for a little bit, bartender, I did that for private parties, janitor, worked in a bakery, anything that involves a mop, and we are being paid much finer, Uh, or again, there's a line from Sister Carrie, um, so many people being paid a fraction for work that is 10 times harder. Mm. And there's, there's guilt in it. Um, like when I, when I, uh, a, li- a little bit, uh, when I check out at the grocery, um, I will may never have to do this again, do that again, you know, rock a point of sale machine. Will three o'clock never come? I've just and I have thoughts like, I I just got to make it through today. What what does that even mean? Make it through without a nervous breakdown? Make it through and not dying? I remember working flipping burgers in college. I just got to make it to eleven. And um, uh, Chris Rock had a really good bit about washing dishes, where like okay, I'm not gonna look at the clock for two hours, and when I look, I'm gonna feel great because it's closer to closing and from our perspective wow it's the end of October already you know days are just moving by quick because there's stuff to do yeah like oh wow I gotta I gotta find this one film for this one car I may have to move this geez that's Friday already it's already Friday in my brain oh I gotta um, we got to figure out more stuff from New Zealand. That's coming up quick. That's in what two months? Uh, three. Three. At the end of end oh, of January. End January. Yeah. January. Yeah. So three months. Three months, more or less. Oh, and there's Thanksgiving and Christmas in between there, and New Year's, and we're going down to. This is the first uh, Christmas I've had that's not in PA. Wait, second, but I was away for one year. Um, yeah, we're flying down to Jacksonville for Christmas. Shout out to anybody who's in Jacksonville. Lord knows I'm going to be bored as hell <laughs> at my Aunt Kay's house. Aunt Kay, sorry. Rich aunt. Different aunt. Aunt Cindy, who's also a teacher. But so many of... Uh, but I, I often want to talk to Aunt Cindy about... Like, she's an English major, too, and she also has a master's degree in English. Mm. But I never get to talk to her about English stuff or book stuff because her life is a eternal road. (laughs) 
She's living in the Q continuum <laughs> where the road is nothing but elderly relatives for whom she is caring. Wow. That's um, a good line. Shit. Yeah. Oh, thanks. It's my uncle Jim who has a stroke and is kind of invalid. Um, for the longest time, it was every relative who's dying, which is kind of where we are now in our mid-30s. Mm. Oh, by the way, when you're 30, every relative you know is going to start dying and you're going to and, and everybody's going to ask you, do you need more furniture? Oh, yeah. Oh, God, that question. Got a, a, a my aunt offered me a shed for um, a shed, this little shed that's about the size of one of those collapsible closets. OK, that as seen on TV, that is literally just a place to put your rakes okay. and your back hose and or your just your hose and all that other stuff. Um, and, you know, what? I'm like, screw it. I'll take it if you're giving it to me, because I was like, hey, I'll give you like 50 bucks for it because it was, you know, actual what it's not collapsible or anything. Mm -hmm. But um, no, she just and then she came to uh, bring it and uh, left it just sort of like left it there. I'm like, I was home. You could have knocked mm -hmm. and I would have gotten it. Well, they, they leave it on the front porch. Yeah. Oh, but now. So you got to drag this around back. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of it was weird, but it's fine. It's it's a perfectly nice, you know, little thing for tools that. You know, it's starting to get cold, so I don't imagine that I'm going to have to be mowing the lawn or doing any sort of gardening things. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Are you sure you don't want this? I have an excuse. Um, I Like, look. I live in an apartment. It's not that big. Trust me, it's not going to fit. We can find a place. No. <laughs> I have enough furniture in here, and it's fine clothes oh my goodness do you need any i don't need any more suit jackets please i don't have a job that requires a suit jacket i have my one nice shirt and my tie and my dress slacks that i wear on planes because god damn it i have standards yeah, yeah back when flying used to be something that you'd put on nice clothes for yeah and i will still do it and i will do it forever and so far it's been worked and so far it's worked yeah, I haven't had any trouble. And I think people see you dressed nicely and there's this intrinsic desire to not want to, you know, give you trouble. Yeah. Like, obviously, you're, you know, he's a nice, quaffed, well-dressed man. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of trouble could he possibly be up to? Yeah. I like the sweater vest on top of the dress shirt with the tie, setting it apart. It's really, I do this for you, TSA. <laughs> Is this guy a problem? No. I do this for you, customs. Yeah. Is this guy... It, it, it's like that line from Ocean's Eleven when um, the Brad Pitt character is talking to the Matt Damon character and he's saying, he's got to like you and forget about you the second you leave. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's, what, that's what I'm going for. Yeah. My, my look, even in daily... Uh, like walking around my daily look is called law-abiding citizen mm. which oh. is really just dad style yeah you just put on your uh got my polo shirt got my cargo shorts and then the and now in the fall it's jeans what am i wearing right now yeah <laughs> jeans and a green polo shirt and a belt and tan socks the only thing weird about me is a hoodie and I normally only wear this at home. I often kind of feel weird now wearing hoodies unless I'm working outside. Mm. I go outside. It's normally a jacket. I just kind of like the idea that 
we both sort of dress, well, not like each other, but we both have our personal style and we dress that way even when we're not being observed. Mm-hmm. So the idea being that, you know, we each have our own law abiding citizen costumes yeah. that we sort of wear even when we don't have to. None know? of my shirts have the sleeves cut off. Yeah. None of I I, I mean, I don't. Which is to say that there's like a non-law-abiding citizen. There's really not. It's just you want to look as innocuous as possible. Just yeah. the idea that, you know, your visual, your human wallpaper. Yeah. And it's just... Eh, eh, eh. Yeah. I do have some junk shirts, but those are working on car shirts. Yeah. Um, that have already been mangled. Mm. I never wear sweatpants at the grocery store. I don't think I've ever once... Well, because you don't have any cats, so... Ah. Hey. Yeah. Do we have a... We can do one more question. All right. Oh, all right. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all I have is one more, actually. It's, uh, what is a car that you never want to review, and what is the car that you want to review the most? Um, The car I want to review the most is, he said with a twinkle in his eye, AutoZam AZ1 right now, because we've gone through stuff that I want... Uh, we still haven't got our hands on a very nice K car, um, but AutoZam AZ1 is another one, and now they're legal in the U.S., or becoming legal year by year. Yes. A car that I don't want to review anymore, I don't care about your Subaru legacy. Nah. We've, we're, we're Subaru'd out, really. We, we've done a, a, an STI-swapped Forester. Um, we did the STI, a Spone Stock yeah. Subaru STI. We did a Brat. Um, we could do a Baja. There's like, uh, you're you're. We could do a 2.5 RS from the late '90s or early 2000s, like the second they got here. But the review itself wouldn't be very long. It's like, look, this was the WRX before the WRX, and it it was to gauge whether Americans were ready to accept a performance Subaru because before that. It was just a bunch of loyals and postal vehicles. Yeah. Um, we could do a Subaru Justy. Occasionally, if one comes around, a Subaru 360. So there are Subarus, but your everyday rank and file Subaru, uh, the whatever. Whatever, I don't care. Yeah. I mean, I don't care about your legacy. We've already done an Outback. I mean, I'm just deleting Subarus now. And the. Unless it's a really weird thing, I'm not even saving those emails anymore. It's just I'm 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 Subaru'd out. Yeah, because I mean, you you're your Forester is the friggin' new camera car. You know, it's yeah. like we're you're Subaru'd out as a daily driver. Right. You know, just what are you supposed to? So what is there left to say that we haven't said already about it? Right. And so it's just these ideas. Are you gonna review your camera car? No, not nah, no, no point. No point. I mean, we've done it in other. I mean, it's just. You can stitch together a Franken review of other Subarus we've done, and that's basically yeah. the review for the ca- new camera car. But, I mean, yeah, Wendy, it's Wendy, right? Uh, Goldie Hawn. Goldie Hawn! Wendy uh, is the, the MR2. Yeah, the MR2. Which uh, I haven't driven in a month. Uh, uh, I just, I don't. Which well, is, which is kind of a hint. I hardly ever drive that car now. It's kind of weird. When we first, uh, or when, you know, we were first doing this and became YouTube partners, and that was always sort of like the dream, the dream this... car. was a AW11, and oh, great, you got it. And it was amazing for most of a year. And then, like, listening to a, a pop song over and over again, like, kind of had enough of it. Yeah. I mean, 
an MR2 AW11 needs 100 more horsepower to be fun. Yeah. And you can do that. And I'm not going to do it because this car is perfect. There's nothing to do on it. There's nothing to work on. It's sung. The MR2 has sung its song. It's a very nice song. And now it's time for someone else to hear it. So if I keep this car as nice as it is, um, I would become the guy who would have the one car that just sits under a um, sits under a cover and is driven like once mm. a month just to turn the oil around. And then you gotta clean that off. And then I have white. to clean it. That super white paint every time I drive it. I realize I gotta wash it again. White as the driven snow. Oh and yeah, it's just. And I mean. Don't get me wrong. It's it's great. It's gorgeous. I, to, to enjoy that car for what it's meant to do, I'd have to mistreat it. Mm. There were times when I started to whip that thing around. It's like, oh, now we get into this is what this car is meant for. But the car is so clean. I don't want to risk. I don't want to risk anything that could get a scratch on it. I don't want to autocross it because I don't want to nail a cone in these things. Mm. Yeah, I put the clear bra over everything in the front. And yeah, that's going to protect stuff. But... Uh, I I bet I would enjoy it more if I bought a crappy one, which yeah. I didn't care. Which is why I enjoy the Falcon because it's it's kind of I, people say, "Wow, it looks good in pictures," and here you can see it has a lot of wear. It's like, yeah, it does. I drive it a lot. I don't care. I drive over a gravel road. You hear stones flying everywhere. I don't care. Yeah. And I drive behind a coal truck. Oh, there's a new chip in the windshield. I don't care. Yeah. Oh, there's some the chips on the paint in the front. I'm I'm I think I said this before, but I just I touch the paint up with a different shade of red. <laughs> I don't mind. Yeah. And it's going to be like that with the DR650. It's a dirt bike. Already it's got mud on it. I took it on a trail. Yeah, yeah it was clean when I bought it, and it isn't going to stay that way. No. And, I mean, you know, some things are just meant for different climates, different environments, and, you yeah. know, different styles of driving. Yeah. You know, and maybe, you know, if you had uh, an MR2 like the one that Marine had, yeah that we reviewed then you know maybe you would sort of just open her up and you know just and just nail bang it. it off the time yeah, try to get the back end loose it'd be fun lord knows there are nice enough roads in this area yeah. for it but you know you can't necessarily once you own something and you take on the status of ownership yeah well, not status but you know the responsibility of ownership then it becomes something that well you know it's like a faberge egg it's like yeah. you don't want to do anything that will inherently decrease its value right and also you don't want to i mean i think in the back of your head or in the back of a lot of people's heads it's like this is what you're seeing the price that you paid for it in yeah. your head at all times and sort of seeing you know digits get knocked off with everything you do to it yeah it's just a strange sensation i would imagine it's like Farrah was talking about when he got his r32 skyline it was nice uh, he liked it. And then, yeah, I've experienced everything that this car can do with that at, in its stock form. And the only way this could be more exciting is if you went dump crazy money and, and modded it. So he sold it. It's like, you had it, you talked about it, and then you got rid of it. It's like, yeah, well, that's, um, I knew what would happen. It would just sit as is my MR2 is just sitting under, under, a, under a cover. Anyway. Well, I guess that's the story of that, but. I don't know. Either way, uh, someone else will buy it, and whoever that person is, I'm, I hope they enjoy it as much as I do. 
All right. Well, that'll be it for us this week. Uh, Thanks for listening. I'm Nick. I'm Brian. And uh, we'll talk to you next week.